I'm going to make things better. You've never made anything better. I'm going to Dawn. And I'm bringing our daughter home. You can't just ask Prince Duran to give her back. She's promised to his son. I'm not going to ask him anything. You go down there with an army, it's an act of war. No army. Do you know where they're keeping her? Oberyn mentioned the war's gardens. I'll find her. Is there anything else, Your Grace? You're going to dawn. A one-handed man. Alone. I never said I was going alone. This week on the Sound Unsight Game of Thrones podcast, we're talking about Season 5, Episode 2, The House of Black and White. Written by David Benioff and D.B. Weiss and directed by Michael Slovis. We'll be right back. Hello and welcome back to the Sound On Sight Game of Thrones podcast. This is Kate Kalsik, TV editor of Sound On Sight, and I'm joined as ever by uh, my wonderful co-host, our general editor, editor-in-chief, co-creator, all of those wonderful things, Mr. Ricky D. Ricky, how's it going? Hey, Kate, I'm good. And this week, returning, uh, returning, yes, Sean, is Sean Coletti. Have you been Have you been on the Game of Thrones podcast before? We've talked Walking Dead, I know that, and of course, lots of Hannibal. Yeah, I think I've been on once. Once. Well, welcome back. And it's a fun episode to talk about this week. Season 5, Episode 2, The House of Black and White. Um, Like we always say at the top of these podcasts, we're just going to focus on this episode. We are not going to talk about any book spoilers. We're not going to talk about any uh, show spoilers, because I know that there have been episode leaks um, for this season. But never fear, we'll just stay focused on what has already happened in the show to this point, including this episode, what has already happened in the books to this point. Um, so I have read the books, but it was a while ago. Uh, Ricky has not. Sean, what about you? I have, but this is about the time where I've forgotten most things. Yes. Well, and this is when they've started really diverging from the source material as well. So I feel like my role as the book reader um, at this point is not very helpful. Uh, I guess I'm a step above like the AV Club newbies level of review, but certainly not expert level. So I don't know how helpful that is. But I do know that I was glad to see Arya back. What did you think of this episode, Sean? Yeah, it was kind of like a big storyline towards the end of season four that we were hoping to see in the premiere that didn't happen. But uh, there's, oh man, there's a lot to talk on just because like this is one of the, the instances in which, you know, Game of Thrones prolongs these really interesting um, plot points where characters reach um, like many climaxes and many resolutions and now it seems like this is like the next stage in Arya's development, development, which I'm sure is really satisfying for a lot of viewers who have been wanting to see just what happens once she finally leaves the continent. What about you, uh, Ricky? What did you think? Yeah, I really love this episode. These are the kind of episodes that I really love when it comes to the Game of Thrones world, because unlike last week, I feel like every single story sort of thematically links and I feel like there's a lot of similarities between the characters that they really focus on, unlike last week, where I kind of felt like it was really unfocused. Like here, there's a lot of focus. Uh, for example, in this episode, we have a lot of characters reuniting 
again, like once again, for example, Jamie and Braun and how excited are we to have Jamie and Braun on the road? <laughs> God, we got to talk about this. Um, but also what's really interesting about this, this episode is it really focuses on so many characters who sort of like renew their vows or stick to a certain oath or promise and or vow. And it's a vow or a promise that sort of puts them in this really odd, very strange situation, which sort of holds these characters back. Like you can think of, you know, Jon Snow, who of course refuses to break his oath to the Night Watch and or Brienne, who insists on protecting Sansa Stark, even though Sansa Stark refuses her help. But she, you know, she she has a vow to Caitlyn Stark. Or, you know, you can look at Jamie, who promises to bring back his daughter to Cersei, uh, and so on and so forth. And so that's what I really like about the, this episode is, is the way it focuses on these, <clears throat> these mini stories, but it somehow all connects to the overall I guess, theme of the episode and perhaps maybe even some of the themes that are, we're going to see throughout all of season five. And that's why I really love this show, because even on an episode like the house of black and white in which we don't get a major action set piece and, or someone dying, like some big, huge character dying, we don't get the red wedding, for example, we do get that incredible exchange of dialogue between Varys and Tyrion. And that, five-minute sequence to me was like one of the best things I've seen on television so far this year. And I love how he talks about the box and the way they, they as outcasts put themselves in a box to sort of protect them from the people in the world that despise them. And they themselves despise these people. And so they put themselves in this box. And then it sort of connects to Daenerys later on in the episode when you know, when she she does decide to execute the slave, which we're going to talk about a little later on, she decides to execute the slave. And of course, all of her people, the people that she rules, the now free people rebel and they sort of hiss at her and they start attacking her and start throwing stones. And then her guards come in and it, they, they take their black shields and they carry her out and they carry out in a position that looks like she's in a box. And then she's all dressed in white and her shields are black. So then you have the whole black and white theme running throughout the episode, which, of course, links back to the House of Black and White, which is where Arya arrives. So to me, this is the kind of episode I really love. Yeah, we talked about this last week a little bit. The, the, the episodes with the thematic tie and a clear structure are the ones that really stick with me. So as soon as I watched this one, um, I had a chance to actually watch it twice because we were recording a little later than we originally, uh, like than we normally would. Got a little more time with this one. And uh, I, I enjoyed it even more the second time. And, uh, and, and, getting to pick up on some of those details, the, the framing of some of these shots, uh, you know, as Arya stands walks directly up the center of the steps to knock on the middle of the doors, you know, um, there's a lot of, you know, visual touches to go with that theme of black and white. And for me, like you said, Ricky, there's, there's these, um, these stories. I didn't look at it as so much as specifically promises, but more as honor. Let's look mm -hmm. at what is honor and, and what value does it have? And is it, what does it cost you? as well. So we see um, that John could be the Lord of Winterfell. He could have this title that he's always dreamed of having, but knew he never could. And with a character as um, emo as Jon Snow often is, that's something that he spent his entire childhood uh, longing for, 
that kind of recognition and that kind of um, respect. And so he gets a very different type of respect here instead by sticking with his honor. He's rewarded with Lord Commander status. Um, but then you look at something like Arya, and I'm not going to go into what, you know, may or may not be coming in the House of Black and White, but the very first thing, rather than sticking with her, um, you know, John does, chooses to not t- take this name of John Stark. He chooses to hold true with his his identity as a man of the Night's Watch. Arya is told by Jack and Hagar, <laughs> love that name, mm. uh, that she must become no one. She must sacrifice her name, her identity, everything that she is, if she's going to to walk this path. And what does that say about you know, in a, in a, in a world so obsessed with name and what the power of a name is and the honor of, of a family, what does that mean for her? And should we be cheering her on to do this? I don't know. What do you think, Sean? See, this is where I become like really impressed with what Weiss and Benioff have done with the series since it began. Like these through lines that both of you have talked about that I felt like season one of Game of Thrones was a really cohesive unit and it worked incredibly well. And then maybe for a couple of years, it lacked that sense of cohesiveness. And since then, though, they've really honed in on how to adapt this into a really successful TV series. And what you're talking about is one of those things where we have points of comparison like Jon Snow and Arya and the decisions that they both have and why one might choose a different path than the other. I think that John exhibits a lot of Ned Stark's characteristics in this episode, just like the way that he handles himself, uh, his attitude towards honor, his attitude towards uh, power, which is one that's very um, reserved and a little bit wary, as it, as it should be, really. And I feel like Arya is going in a different direction than that, just based on the kind of person that she's developed. It's like the world of Westeros has certainly beaten down both of these characters in different ways, but each one has come out on top just in a different direction, I guess. And one of them uh, I feel a little bit more optimistic about in terms of if we're looking at like their humanity and, and the hopes of that. And I'm, I'm less optimistic about Arya. Well, it's funny because you both talk about choice. And the thing is, with characters like Jon Snow and Arya, they are making these choices like they sort of like decide what kind of people they want to be and what kind of road they want to take but at the same time when it comes to them coming into power like these characters that we love even though they make these choices that lead them on this route to power they don't necessarily choose to be powerful like it's like Daenerys was destined to be the queen because she's the mother of dragons Jon Snow was voted to be the leader of the Night Watch and you know and so on and so forth so it's it's just interesting how like I do kind of feel like, and we talked about this even last season and I'm a non book reader and I haven't watched ahead of this episode. So even if, you know, screeners did leak online and, or the network does provide critics with screeners, I haven't watched past the house of black and white up to this point. So I don't know what's coming, but I've said this time and time again, where I kind of feel like based on what I see as a TV viewer, I've always felt that Daenerys, Jon Snow and Tyrion have been safe. And to some extent, Arya Stark and, what I really like about Jon Snow's storyline this year, and now keep in mind, I've been a fan of Jon Snow since the very beginning, whereas a lot of critics have criticized the writing of his character and also the performance from the actor. I've always been a fan of Jon Snow, but I 
got to admit that his storyline feels a lot more focused this year. And the same can be said for a character like Stannis, who I really did not care for at all in the past. And, and in this episode, we see a different side of Stannis. And I, I don't know, I was really taken back when we do get that, that sequence in which Stannis does offer Jon Snow what he's always wanted to, to not only remove the name bastard from, from, from his name, but also to be the king of Winterfell. And, you know, I'm pretty sure this is why characters like Brienne and Jon Snow are our favorite characters, because it's all about honor and sticking to their word. And just it's not just even about being a good person, because even in this world, like it kind of seems like there really isn't any good people to some extent. Um, but it's just it's it, it's it's refreshing to see these characters who do have sort of like a self-respect and a, a code of honor and they they honor their like vows. And I don't know, it's it's kind of like it's weird because last week I complained about the characters who I miss, like Tywin, for example, even King Joffrey. I mean, they were great villains. And so I was worried going into season five that now that we've lost all of these great characters, I might not like the show as much as I did in the past. And with this episode, I'm no longer worried because in this episode, it does show we still have a lot of characters who I personally love. If it's not Varys or Tyrion on the road, then it's Jamie and Bronn on the road or Podrick and Brienne on the road. And I love the pairings. And that's one thing that this show does so well. It's pairings. It's, it's focusing on two characters and their journey and their storyline as opposed to doing too much in one episode, you know? And I, I kind of feel like this episode was, again, really focused. So this is the word I'm going to use throughout the episode, focus. <laughs> <laughs> well, when you talk about, uh, to tie in with what you're saying, Ricky, about um, keeping their word and promises, I mean, just look at Varys and Littlefinger. There are two sides uh, of the same coin, but Varys doesn't make promises, and Littlefinger makes all of the promises and then just does, they both just do whatever they want, but Varys isn't willing to make a promise because he knows he won't necessarily keep it. Whereas Littlefinger will sell you the moon if it'll help him. And uh, yeah. (laughs) It's a good way to to judge like a a character's character in this series and in the song of ice and fire, just because um, like you said, Rick with Jon Snow, here is somebody who's given the opportunity to become what he's wanted to pretty much since he can remember, you know, he dreamt about Ned offering him that kind of title. And here he's given the chance to be John Stark, but of what use is his word? If he can't keep his oath to the night's watch, that's the reasoning that he uses. And that's the reasoning that his father would have used as well. Mm-hmm. Now, if I'm going to just nitpick here for, for a bit, because, you know, we are praising this episode, I wasn't the biggest fan of the execution of the scene in which Jon Snow is elected because I just felt it's something we've seen so many times before in typical Hollywood films, you know, like it was so obvious that he would win the election. And so when Meister Eamon actually does give him the very last vote and therefore Jon Snow wins the election and everyone starts cheering, I understand that as a TV show that has so many characters and so many storylines, you can't you can't possibly make that specific sequence any longer than it already is, but it it just felt unusual for this show. Like it just, it felt like it was sort of like a TV trope. And so I, I don't think it was the most satisfying or surprising way to execute that specific scene. But at the same time, I'm kind of glad they didn't spend say like an extra 20 minutes on this election. And, you know, I don't know. I don't know if that makes any sense to you guys, but it's just a one aspect of this specific episode that felt out of place 
in terms of like the tone and the setting and the execution and so on and so forth for a typical Game of Thrones episode. Well, that's one place where I can be helpful as our book person and Sean, you know, you can jump in here too. Um, in the, in the books, it's a little different because, um, basically that is all orchestrated by Sam. And so when it looks like their options are, um, not very competent person and idiot who was cowering in the shadows, pissing himself, uh, it goes to, and I don't remember much about the, the other guy from the other castle. I don't even remember his name off the top of my head here. Um, but when it looks like they're going to be stuck with that, that, uh, jerk face from from the uh from the king's landing uh sam goes and does all bunch of politicking and and works the votes and makes it happen with uh you know rallying up support for john of course john's too busy worrying about stannis and these other things that are going on to to know that this is happening so he's surprised with it but it's not like a spur of the moment thing so it doesn't it, it it feels much more deliberate in the books and less convenient i guess well and and I mean, in a book, you can go into greater detail, right? Because yeah. you're not worried about an hour of screen time. Anyhow, it was just a small nitpick. It just felt out of place. Well, also, we know why we don't want that one guy being Knight, Lord Commander. You know, the uh, is that that's Slint, right? What's you know, or is that Trout? What's which one is he? God, I'm trying to remember his name. I can't remember. Uh, it doesn't Sir, Sir Alistair. Alistair, that's what it is. Yeah, uh, we know why don't we don't want him in charge. But I would have liked to have gotten any, just a sense of why we don't want the other um, f- brother of the Night's Watch, who's come, you know, from the other castle, to be in charge. Um, you, you're talking about the guy who looks like he's like 80 years old. I was going to say it's because he's old. We're it's because he's ages. old. <laughs> well, I'm just saying, you know. Uh, for this to have been I, I, just a little bit more, and he got like no votes too. I'm guessing that was he, he the one who he was the one who got no votes. But um, yeah, I I I, I guess I wasn't bothered by it. again. It's hard to think about the notion of surprise when you already know it's going to happen. So I can't really speak to that. But um, having ha- having it be a tie and having the maester cast the deciding vote adds an an extra element of of choice to it everybody's voting individually but it's also he's you know he's being selected or approved i guess by the maester who you know as viewers we respect so um it's an extra sign of of trust in uh in in john that i think is is a nice touch but yeah you're right it's not uncliche certainly do you guys have any other thoughts of north north of the wall just to touch on that that uh yeah i I agree that i can see where you're coming from rick that it's a little bit tropey but it's it's really Sam that makes that scene, I think, just because here he's had to kind of witness Gilly get discriminated against for being a wildling. And it's just like the people that he cares about aren't being given the respect that he knows that they deserve because he knows them as human beings. And so it's it's less about John for me in that sequence than it is about Sam, which is how it is in the books as well. Okay. Well, what about uh, Danny? Let's talk about that choice. Did she make the right that, one? Oh, man. That's the most interesting through line here is because I think that it's purposely paralleling what's happening with Cersei in this episode. And it's weird because we constantly think of Cersei as an antagonist in this series and Daenerys as a protagonist. But the similarities that they share uh, in terms of the decisions that they have to make uh, with the power that they're given is is really unsettling because I almost <laughs> it's one of those instances in which, Oh man, I really hope that Cersei doesn't get like point of view chapters. I really hope that like, I don't end up caring about Cersei. And I feel like 
it's moving in that direction that they're trying to humanize her by by contrasting her with Daenerys and showing that the two aren't actually as different from one another as we we think that they are. Hmm. Yeah, well, I think the hardships of ruling continues to be a major theme of this episode and the season, and there is a parallel between Cersei and Daenerys to some extent. But it's it's funny how that specific scene also mirrors the beheading of Ned Stark back in season one. And I'm not entirely sure what you could have done to remedy that problem. Like, I'm not sure as a ruler, like, if I were in Daenerys' shoes, what could I have actually done? Because clearly, you know, the episode's called The House of Black and White, and ruling, or when it comes to, like, you know, being a, a commander, or any, when it comes to the laws in the world of Game of Thrones, clearly nothing's black and white. But what could she have possibly have done? I mean, t- to some extent, she's correct. Like, he did actually commit an act of murder, but I just think it's a harsh crime to execute him but the problem with Daenerys and this speaks to her inexperience as a leader which we've talked about several times on the podcast um, I mean the fact that she decides to execute this slave in front of everybody like you know what I mean like it's like she put on a show what kind of reaction was she expecting to get from the free people I mean these are people who were upset because she didn't want them to have the gladiator battles you know what I mean and now she's beheading one of their own people so I, I just like this is why I can't wait and I hope to god we get it I can't wait for Tyrion to actually be by her side because right now she really needs someone to advise her because she can't seem to do anything right much like Cersei by the way who can't seem to do anything right either uh, and it was so heartbreaking how at the end of the episode her dragon does return to her. And so there's a brief moment of hope where we think, like, you know, it's a reminder that she is the mother of dragons and and she has the wild card, right? Especially with the big dragon. Forget about the two that are locked away, but she's got that big baddie. I forget his name is Drogon, I think. Mm-hmm. And he still, to some degree, rejects her. So her people reject her. Her dragons reject her. I mean, she's supposed to be, like, this this leader. She's supposed to have, like, this destiny to be, to, to become the queen of the throne. And I was... Thinking back on last week's episode, I was thinking specifically about the opening sequence in which we get the flashback and the witch tells Cersei that someone younger and more beautiful will, will come and take her place and become the queen of, of, of Winterfell. And, you know, we get that cutaway to Marjorie. And to me, Marjorie is too obvious of a choice. I don't think Marjorie's ever I don't think Marjorie's ever going to have the chance to have that kind of power, despite the fact that she's like, you know, uh, seducing Tommen. But. There's also Daenerys, right? But I don't even think it's Daenerys at this point. At this point in time, I think it's one of the Stark children. Like I think it could be Sansa and or Arya, for all I know. It 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 it, it could be anybody. But it, it seems like season five is all about women. You know, if it's not Melisandre, if it's not Daenerys, if it's not Cersei, it's Arya, it's Brienne, it's it's Sansa. It seems like this season's going to focus on women. And in the past, we had all these men who were pulling the strings, but a lot of these men are dead. Ned Stark's dead, Tywin's dead, King Joffrey's dead, um, Tyrion's on the run, Varys is on the run, Littlefinger is doing God knows what, you know, being the creep he is. Like, so it kind of feels like this season's really going to focus on the women. And if there's one thing that I know as a viewer of TV show is George R.R. R. Martin really loves outcasts and he really loves his women. You know, his female characters are and his outcasts are the people that he seems to love. And I think that's what kind of excites me moving forward. It's interesting for me that 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 you see this decision to execute the slave or the the former slave, I should say, the person of the people, you know, as opposed to of the former masters um, publicly as 
the wrong thing to do or as just like a clear misstep. I mean, of course the people are, are going to not be happy about it, but I feel like it'd be even worse if she, if he just like disappeared and she was all shadowy about it. No, but the thing is she didn't give him a trial. Although he does admit to executing the, the unsullied, he still doesn't get a trial. He says, I did it and I did it for you. I mean, he right, confessed. But, but, but has a, a ruler, what I would have done is I would have still had a trial and he can express his viewpoint of why he executed the Unsullied. And then I can rebuttal and say, you know, the law is the law. You know what I mean? And so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. And there, there just wasn't a trial. So it was weird that she wanted to give the other man a trial, but then she doesn't want to give him a trial. Okay. What do you think, Sean? It's one of those tricky situations where either way, like damned if you do and damned if you don't. I, it, Again, this is like, just like seriously, I think Daenerys is trying to pander and or cater to as many people as possible to maintain some aura of professionalism and leadership. And it just doesn't work out. And and I think Rick's right that that's why we're, we're really waiting for Tyrion to come here because he's such... Uh, just an invaluable advisor to anybody really who has any head on their shoulders um, or who can be influenced in, into choosing the right path. But it's, I don't know. I, it seemed like the thing that Daenerys would do that's yeah, the, the, there should have been a trial for the first person. And because this, this one admits to having murdered the other one, that's, yeah, you need to make an example of the person, I suppose. And going back to season one, when, when King Joffrey beheads Ned Stark, he doesn't just behead Ned Stark. He has like a big speech and gives his twisted reasons for executing Ned Stark. Regardless of the people like King Joffrey and or like Ned Stark, he he does at least present a reason. Like, I don't remember in this episode Daenerys actually even speaking out to the crowd and explaining the reason for this execution. And again, it's so explicit. It's so like, it's on this grand stage for everyone to see. And I mean, like these people are lost, you know what I mean? They're confused and they don't know better. And so it was just like, it was the worst way to, I mean, again, that, that goes to show her inexperience as a leader. Like she might be a great leader one day, but she will never be a great leader until she has someone by her side who can guide her. And that, and that's what she needs right now. But so, yeah, so basically she's imposing her own sense of justice on her chosen home, but it's her, it's, it's, it's like, it's, it's what she feels is right. It's not what she and her council feels is the right move. So she's like, and and it's, it's interesting because correct me if I'm wrong, but this is the episode in which she does get backstory about her dad, right? The mad King. Yeah. Yeah. Is like, is, is that the first time where we actually have someone tell her any story about her dad? Because I don't remember her anyone ever approaching her about the Mad King in the past. Um, did Jorah? Yeah, I feel like Jorah like might have mentioned a thing or two. Yeah. But nothing that, of that substance. Because yeah. I don't think it's, it'd really come up in the same way for no. her previously. Um, yeah. Jorah I, wouldn't have used it as a way to, like, kind of explain what she should be doing and what she should try not to do. Yeah. I do very much like though, that she has, there is that conversation. It's like, Oh no, 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 no. Yeah. You have enemies certainly, but they were not lying about the mad King. He, there's a reason he was deposed and it's cause he was a psycho. 
Yeah, well, you know, it's it's hard to expect such a big change from anyone, you know, be it slaves and or, and or it's say, for example, modern day. Like if you if you have someone who's been a prisoner, has been in jail for 25 years and he is released from prison. Usually what happens is those prisoners get end up back in jail because they don't know what to do in the real world. You know what I mean? It's no different than these slaves who don't know what to do. Like if you have someone who used to be a gladiator and that's how he used to make his money and his riches and he would have, even if he had a master, his master would to some degree take care of them. And then all of a sudden they're free men and you don't have gladiators anymore. Then what do they do in, uh, for, you know, not just for occupation, not just to live, but what do they do just in life? Like if that's, if that's all they know, it's no different than Brienne, who I think we should start talking about, you know, in this episode, Podrick actually, tells her he's like you know Sansa Stark refuses your help Arya Stark refuses your help isn't that a reason to to not to not continue your quest to protect her like aren't you released from your vows but what would Brienne do if she wasn't in service of someone like her whole life she's been a guard and or servicing someone higher up in society than she is right so what would Brienne do if she's not protecting Sansa Stark like <laughs> <laughs> like, she doesn't I don't know that she knows how to and I think that's part of why I think we're going to see that journey for her this season what is she if she is not a sworn sword to someone and right now her, I think this, the Starks have refused their help her help now mm-hmm. all the Starks that she could be protecting uh, have said never mind and so now when she's following and protecting Sansa it is for her it is not, you know, it's because of her connection to Catelyn, yes, but yeah, it's this is, it's for her. And watching her come to terms with that and watching her decide what that means for her and for, for her future. And also, you know, I think Podrick is going to push that issue as well because clearly he's going to get put in danger um, and he won't not follow her. So therefore, she has to have that responsibility as well. And if she's going to, it's one thing to, for her to just keep following Sansa around trying to protect her, even if she shouldn't. But it's another thing for her to put Podrick in danger to do that. Um, so I really am looking forward to where this is heading. And I love that they did not stretch out her finding Sansa and Littlefinger. Yeah, same here. Yeah, yeah. no, it's it's one of those decisions that, again, Weiss and Benioff have made to like allow for those mini moments of just real satisfaction for finally having some kind of narrative convergence. And those are things that we need as viewers. And if we're not getting like, like really fascinating set pieces or conversations, like meaningful conversations between characters, just little things like that go a long way in terms of like keeping the thrust of the the season going, I think. Yeah. And, and her scenes were brief. I mean, she didn't take up as much screen time as, say, Arya and or, like, Daenerys, but we get so much within, like, say, the five to ten minutes of screen time to give Podrick and Brienne. I mean, to the point where, first of all, we learn that Littlefinger is getting married to someone, which totally confuses me. I'm not sure who, who he's marrying. I still have no idea which direction they are headed in. Like, where is Sansa and Littlefinger headed? I have no clue. So there's a lot of question marks. Also, like, you know, we we just spoken about Brienne and why she decides to or why she insists on protecting Sansa and and Arya. To, and it's not just about breaking the vows, like we said, but it's also like she doesn't want to be alone. So she's conflicted because she doesn't want to put Podrick in danger. But at the same time, she enjoys his company, you know, like even way back in season three, when she was on the road with Jamie. You could tell that there was chemistry between those two, not just like the actors, but the characters. Right. And so she 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 she's the kind of person where she doesn't want to to acknowledge her emotions 
it, it is to some extent selfish. Like she is on this quest because she doesn't want to be alone and she doesn't know what else to do. And so that one little line of dialogue from Podrick, when he says, if both Stark girls refuse your service, maybe you're released from your vow. It speaks volumes about her character. And then her reply is her, she has the stupidest reply. She's like, do you think he's safe with Littlefinger? Like, no, duh. Of course not. But who cares? <laughs> you know what I mean? Well, well yeah, but she does. So it does it. Okay. Sansa doesn't want her help. Fine. But, but Brienne knows that Sansa's not safe with, with Littlefinger. So just because Sansa doesn't know she needs protecting doesn't mean that that's not a reason, you know? And I think because Littlefinger is such a slime ball, terrible guy, um, the, the audience is, it's, is very much with her. I think if it was just an unknown entity, it would be a very different question. Man, I'm back to hating Sansa. Okay. I mean, <laughs> well, I'm but back. she doesn't know Brienne. We have to keep that oh, in mind. I don't care. You don't have to be the smartest person in the world to know that Littlefinger is trouble. He's a creep. He's slimy. He's conniving. You can't trust him. She should know better. She, I mean, I, I kind of feel bad for Sansa because she was married to King Joffrey and now she's now she's side by side with Littlefinger, like the two worst people on the planet. <laughs> you know, can it get worse? Is there anyone mm. worse than Littlefinger and King Joffrey? What's next for Sansa? But she just drives me up the wall because the difference between Arya and Sansa rejecting Brienne is Sansa thinks that she is better off with Littlefinger. Arya just I don't know. Arya was just it's it, it was different. She was on she had her own journey. She made her a choice. You know what I mean? Sansa's not really making a choice. She's put into this. I mean, to some degree, yes, but I kind of feel like she's, she just can't really do anything for herself. Like she has to continuously rely on people to help her out of these situations. And no one is really helping her. They're making things worse. I think that she's choosing the devil she knows. And I think she's also trusting that, Baelish is obsessed with her to some point, um, which means he's not, he's going to keep her safe and alive. She he, he may very well be creepy, you know, creeping on her mm -hmm. that whole time. But um, I think she feels like this is something she, uh, like a threat that she can have some uh, agency in as compared to her situation at, um, at King's Landing. And I think that's why she's going in this direction. What do you think, Sean? Yeah, I think that this is definitely a case to some extent of just very smart self-preservation. And if she had stayed in King's Landing, that would not have ended well for her at all. Especially because we see decapitated dwarves' heads in this episode. Oh, my God. I know, right? Okay, so just to go back to my question marks, have we been informed that Littlefinger is getting married to someone new? Or is this a new thing? This is a new thing. Okay, so because they kind of slipped that little piece of dialogue in, and I was like, "What?" I'm like, wait, didn't he just get married to her aunt? Well, yeah, but he's you know, a, a marriage is a uh, business contract, and especially for him. I mean, he married Lysa so that he could have the Eerie, and then he killed her so that he could have someplace else. Yeah, he's like that serial killer we had in Canada that married like several women and killed them to get their inheritance. <laughs> Delightful. It's a really unfortunate <laughs> parallel. Can I just say that as a, a viewer of television, you know, you have these moments when you're watching something. It happens to me in The Americans where Margot Martindale's name will come up on the credits and I'm immediately excited. As soon as I saw Jerome Flynn's name pop up in the credits, 
I, it's just it makes the episode of Game of Thrones for me to see whatever they do with Bronn just because it doesn't matter. And he is so good in this role. And the fact that we actually get a storyline as intriguing with this with Jamie that builds upon some of the better scenes that, that that character had last season. I could not be more excited for that. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to what we're going to get with Bronn. It, when we talk about Jamie and Bronn, though, I, I, I have to mention... Uh, Jamie's leather motorcycle jacket. I'm sorry, I mean, traveling gear. Totally time period specific <laughs> traveling gear that isn't at all, let's watch Jamie look cool in a leather jacket. Come on, guys. Hold on a second. That is one thing I noticed in this episode was his jacket. I love the jacket. I want that jacket. It's a cool like- jacket, but I mean, come on, guys. It's ridiculous. Oh, I don't know. Hey, hey, Jamie fucking Lannister. Yeah, exactly. Jamie Lannister and Braun on the road wearing those jackets, riding motorcycles. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I actually, I really, honestly loved the jacket. Like, I can, I can understand how you feel it's out of place in the world of Game of Thrones, but has whoever oh, yeah, designed he looks awesome. Don't yeah, get me wrong, yeah. he looks awesome. But whoever designed the jacket, man, props to them. Like the costume designs are always fantastic in this episode. But usually, we it's the women who stick out, not the men. It's the first time I've actually seen a man stick out because of what he's wearing. So I thought that was, I don't know, I really liked that. I appreciate it. Um, I'm really excited for Braun and Jamie. And I mean, I, I expect a lot of swordplay. Expect a lot of action set pieces. I um. I don't know. I mean, they're going to be the new Brienne and Jamie, right? Let's just replace Brienne with Braun. It's going to be great. I have a question going back oh. to Arya. Okay. So when Arya arrives at the House of Black and White, you said she knocks directly in the middle of the two doors. She doesn't knock on the right door instead of the left door. Because I thought she knocked on like the black door and or the white door as opposed to the door she's supposed to knock on. I was a little confused about that. She walk, She Well, she walks straight up the center and then she knocks and her hands on the right so she she knocks with her right hand on the white door but she's like centered because that shot is very much you know with the black and the white right in the center of the frame at least that's what i'm remembering sean any do you you know do you do you remember do you have a different memory of that no it was it seemed like right hand on what was her left side which is the white door right yeah it's i mean (laughs) is are we going for like symbolism here (laughs) sure um, yeah, so do you have to knock in the middle to display, like, an understanding of balance? Mostly well, I think about... it's just a door. <laughs> <laughs> I thought we were going for symbolism. Sorry, we're going for symbolism. Yes! But no, yes. but that's what I was thinking. I was thinking that, you know, she, because she knocked on either one side of the door as opposed to the middle, that's why she didn't get in. So I, I, I thought it was reverse of what you saw, Kate. And I would have to you you watch the episode twice to be fair, but I, I that's what I was thinking. I was thinking, okay, so maybe she knocked at the middle this time, like the second time mm-hmm. around, which yeah. would which would explain because the, like from from my understanding, the whole the whole point is that she's supposed to remove her identity, right? And so it doesn't make sense if she's knocking on either side of the door because she's still choosing a side as opposed to choosing to be like invisible. I think the identity question, I mean, that's that's an interesting observation, and I, I'm sure that we could, like, go into that. I think that idea, though, has more to do with, um, like, becoming no one. It's a matter of, like, throwing the coin away and also the recitation of the death list and, like, 
having to go through all those processes just so that like she doesn't care anymore and has reached that point of now that I've finally come to Bravos and have like achieved what I thought were my goals, I I'm not getting what I had expected. And it's at that point in which she's let in. Oh, okay. See, I didn't think about that. So my review is completely wrong then. Cause in my review, I was complaining about this, the additional scenes we get of Aria basically walking around, um, Bravos. And I was like, okay, we're not, it's not really moving her story forward. Like we get, we get to see her walking around. She, she looks at the coin. She's contemplating throwing the coin away. She recites the names on her kill list. I'm like, we've seen this all done before in the past. Like, why are we spending so much time on Aria doing pretty much the same thing over and over again? And then she goes back to the house of black and white and finally she gets in. So I was like, I just thought from watching the episode, they wasted a lot of screen time on her doing things we've seen her do before. I didn't think about it that way. Also, I don't know if I'm overthinking this, but when she was reading out the names on the list, she didn't name everyone that was on the list in previous seasons. So does, does, does Aria know, for example, Tywin is dead and some of the other people who were originally on her list are dead because she doesn't name several characters in this episode. I feel like Tywin's death would be a big enough deal that she could have reasonably heard about it. Okay. And, I mean, she took care of a couple names, didn't she? She listed off, like, about four or five names in this episode, but I don't think she listed, for example, King Joffrey or Tywin and or um, there's someone else I can't remember right now. Well, didn't she, didn't she stab one of the guys from her list? Yeah, she stabs someone yeah. in the eye. Yeah. Yeah. I think there were and, only four people on the list in this episode. Yeah. And she would know about King Joffrey's death, I think. And I think, and uh, because again, that's big news. And it's enough time has passed since then that it would make sense. Like, there's, they've had the big state funerals and everything. So I think it, I can buy her having heard about Joffrey and having heard about Tywin. I'm not sure about the others. Do we have any other, uh, any other. You know, we haven't really talked about Dorne. Actually, we haven't talked about Dorne at all. Were you guys glad to see Elaria Sand back? And uh, what do you think about, you know, I, of course, uh, Alexander Siddig, I always go to uh, Deep Space Nine uh, with him. So I'm always glad to see him pop up. What did you guys think of our first glimpse of Dorne Martell? I'm into it. I mean, like, this is an area that they fitted into the TV series Game of Thrones really well. And I think that viewers got really attached to Oberon and so to stick with some of his kin and to see how they're reacting in, in the wake of what happened it's important for those viewers who did get attached and just because you know we know the rules of this series and things come back tenfold most of the time um, this is a subset of characters that I think is, is worth spending time with but yeah it's I mean we only get like a, a small glimpse of it here so it's hard to say but it's it's enough to keep me interested well, I think the reason why I'm excited for Dorne is simply because Jamie and Braun are headed to Dorne. It, it, like, it gives Jamie something to do, and I think Jamie is a better person and a more interesting character to watch on a TV show when he's not next to his sister. You know, like whenever Jamie's in, at King's Landing, I find he's just not as compelling to watch. And so knowing that he will leave King's Landing, go on the road to Dorne excites me. I think the Dorne sequences moving forward are going to be most likely the most exciting scenes in the in season five. I hope I'm also a little confused because, OK, so Cersei has a package, right? She she is already aware that 
the package seems to be some kind of warning, like someone's going to kill her daughter. So she fears for her daughter's life. What I don't understand is she calls Jamie into the room and Jamie's the one that opens the package. And then he sees the snake and he sees the, um, what is it? Like the medallion, the necklace, whatever it is. And mm. so like, it's like, did she like wrap the gift up again? So Jamie can open it again. And how does she know that it's actually a warning of danger? Like I'm confused. And cause in this episode, they kind of imply that Alaria Sands is responsible for sending this package because she clearly wants to kill Cersei's daughter. As she says in the episode, she wants to cut her up into pieces and mail her body pieces to Cersei one at a time, which is just, which is disturbing. But anyways, um, but I just feel like it's a little too obvious. And so I'm not even entirely sure if the package was a warning. Like, you know what I mean? Was it a warning or was it a threat? Was someone warning her that her daughter's in danger and or is it someone telling her, hey, we are going to kill your daughter? Like, I'm totally confused about this. Anything revolving around Dorm confuses me because it's a new place, a new world, new characters, and I'm not entirely sure what to think of these people because he's labeled Prince Martell, not King Martell. So is there a king? Um, is he the ruler? Second of all, what is her status now? Like, does she actually have power? Also, how do we know that the package came from Dorne? Like, because Cersei says there's two medallions like that in the world. Where's the second medallion? It's hers. She's wearing it. It's hers. Okay. So that's, that's, I just want to clear that up. That's what I thought. Yeah. So, so I just don't think that she is the, per- like, Alaria uh, uh, Sand. I don't think she's actually the person who mailed the medallion to Cersei. It just, it seems a little too obvious. Yeah. And, and this is a show that really is um, very good at, uh, or the book series as well, is very good at people misreading signals. I mean, think of how much of the, the series problems started when um, a dagger, <laughs> a nondescript dagger was used to attack Bran back in season one, or I should say a very specific dagger, but um from you know that was stole one in a bet from this person to uh get purchased by this other person so that they can make it seem like this third person is involved in the, you know it all tied back to Littlefinger but then um Littlefinger told Catelyn that it was Tyrion's dagger and all of this different stuff um it's easy for messages to be layered at the very least in Westeros so i think that's a astute point Ricky yeah, I would say it's one of those things where we'll just have to give it some time. Yeah. I also want to know if we're going to get to see more of Tywin's... Is it Tywin, Tywin's brother? Is it Cersei's uncle? Mm-hmm. Who's, like, part of the council? Yeah. Who? Well, he Kevin, right? He goes back to, uh, to Casterly Rock and's like, uh, nope, not doing this. It's nice to see someone who just doesn't buy what she's selling. Well, cause I kind of feel like Kevin Lannister can be the new Tywin Lannister. Well, we'll have to see if whether but, it, Tywin but, is made of very specific stuff, whether he can, you know. But the, the, but the thing about Kevin Lannister is, correct me if I'm wrong, but doesn't he reside somewhere near Nightwatch? Like, isn't he north? Or no, does, no, no, no. So he actually lives in King's Landing. No, he's going back to Casterly Rock, which is the, like, where the Lannisters are from. It's their, it's, it's their Winterfell. Okay, okay. Yeah. Do we have any other areas of the show we want to kind of talk about a little bit here? I mean, do we want to talk about this other stuff at the council or do we or or you know, what what are you guys most looking forward to next week with these, you know, the all these different pairings that we now have established? 
If the answer is not Jamie and Braun, then there is no answer. <laughs> How about more dragons? Yeah, you know, it's weird because it's something that they have to put a lot of their budget into in terms of the special effects. I mean, like, I always enjoy it, but I'm I'm more interested in Daenerys' relationship with them, almost as characters, than I am with just the novelty of having them on screen. I really liked that, that scene we got with her and Drogon at the end where you're just not quite sure what he's going to do. Is he going to bite her finger off? <laughs> or is he going, hey, mom. The other thing, I watched that and just like the first thing I thought of is, oh, oh it's hard being, uh, you know, raising kids. You know, they go off to college and they never call. Uh, just seeing the world, you know, when he just flies off like that and you have no idea when he'll be back. Uh, I thought it was a lovely little scene and a pick-me-up that she really needed after her day. How is that not a YouTube special where they just do the dragons, like, off at college? I don't know. <laughs> but they should, right? You know. What um, do you think, Ricky? What do you, which pairing are you most excited for moving forward? I think they should do a YouTube video, Too Many Cooks Crossed With Game of Thrones. I think that would be awesome. <laughs> <laughs> um, speaking of production values and budget, what I really love about this season, too, is we're getting to see a lot more of these specific locations. Like, you know, we get introduced to Dorne, we get introduced to Bravos, but we had like these beautiful aerial shots. Last week, we had the huge statue sitting on top of the, the pyramid, which dominates the skyline of Yunkai Marine, sorry. So, and this week, we get the, the statue of Titan of Bravos, which guards the harbor entrance to the city. And what I really like about the show is I kind of feel like Every part of Winterfell, like the different parts of this world, kind of feel like a different genre. So if you like, if you're watching, like, and that's why I really like, I've, I've said this many times in the past, why I really like the scenes that revolve around Jon Snow up north, because it really feels at time like it's, it's, it really feels like a fantasy show, but also like it has elements of horror within like that storyline. Like if, if not, it's not just the White Walkers, but it's just like the look and feel and mood and tone and soundtrack and the score and just the overall setting. And then you get to Dorne, which sort of looks like Venice. I was reading up on it and apparently they, I don't know if they, they filmed it in Venice and the certain parts of Italy, but it's supposed to look like, mm -hmm. like Venice or specific parts of Italy. And, well, it, and that's, that's Bravos. Sorry, Dorne. Bravos, right. Dorne yeah. is the desert, right? Mm -hmm. So yeah, Bravos looks like Venice and Dorne looks like it's a desert. And I kind of feel like, and I don't know, but I kind of feel like they, they film, the series in different parts of the world, specifically like in places like Europe and who knows, maybe Africa, South America. I don't know where they film the show, but it looks like it looks like a world. You know, when you talk about world building, they're doing a really good job moving forward. And I don't know if they have a bigger budget now, but it's a there's a there, I feel like there's a huge difference between the world building now as opposed to, say, season one and season two. Yeah, there's a lot of specificity to it. And I mean, if you're in a city like Bravos and this with the level of technology they have, uh, meaning they don't have skyscrapers, guys. Anywhere you go in in Bravos, you're gonna be able to see the Colossus, or the, the sorry, not the Colossus of Rhodes, the Titan uh, of Bravos. Um, so I love that in pretty much any scene where uh, where where Arya is not in an alley, if she's in Bravos, you can see the the titan in the background somewhere like little details like that i really appreciate winterfell looks like scotland or ireland you know uh king's mm -hmm. landing looks well i mean it's like a huge palace but i don't know it's just i really really like 
how much effort and they're putting into like the production design. And uh, I, I don't know how much of it is CGI. I don't know how much of it is them on location shooting somewhere around the world, but they do a really good job this season. I think so far two episodes in, I think they're, I think it's, it's one of the, the things that stands out as opposed to previous seasons. Yeah. Well, and those previous seasons were no slouch either. So um, that's really a statement I think on, on, on what the team is able to continue to do season after season. So in terms of pairing, I got to agree with uh, Sean and I think everyone's going to agree. Jamie and Braun. I want to, I, I don't want pod and Brienne to, to split up just yet. And uh, Tyrion and Daenerys eventually Soon, yeah. sooner than later, please. Very excited for Jamie and Braun, but I still got to give it to Varys and, uh, and Tyrion for right now. Just that, that again, the comedy stylings, of the uh, of of uh, Tyrion and uh, Varys are for me the number one. Though I look forward to more Braun in my Game of Thrones life as well. Um, well, Sean, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Uh, where can our listeners find you and your work online? Uh, thank you for having me. Yeah, you can see some of my written work over at Sound on Sight or at TVOverMind.com, and then some podcasts at Sound on Sight as well. Uh, the midseason replacements uh, under the hood for Banshee. And we are counting down the days until this is our design comes back for Hannibal. Very excited for that. Ricky, what's going on at Sound on Sight right now? Um, there's a lot going on. The month of April is dedicated to the best of Canadian cinema and television. And month of May, we're going to focus on action movies. We're going we're gonna to also have a list of the 100 greatest action scenes. There's tons of podcasts. We're gonna, we have the Game of Thrones podcast, of course, the Walking Dead podcast. There's... The movie podcast that I host. Twin Peaks podcast. Twin Peaks podcast, Sorted Cinema. I have a gaming podcast. You can play video games. Check it out. It's great. We have a new guest each and every single week. We bring on a lot of the game developers and designers. And there's a lot going on over at soundonsite.org. So give us a like on Facebook. Follow us on Twitter. Follow us on Tumblr. We do need your support. And you can always give a rating on iTunes, too. Well, and you can find me on uh, Talking the Rest of TV at Sound on Sight on Tuesdays with the Televerse podcast, which I co-host with Simon Howell. And, uh, yeah, there's a lot of, of fun stuff coming up ahead for us. The Yeah, right now we're talking a lot of season spotlights. So Justified, The Americans, Daredevil. We, got, we have several more like those coming up, as well as I'm very excited Ricky's going to come on back pretty soon. And hopefully before too long, Sean, you'll be back with us as well. But lots of great TV talk over there at the Televerse Podcast. You can also find me on Twitter at the Televerse. I love talking about these shows with you guys. So drop me a line there. Next week, we'll be back to talk about Season 5, Episode 3, High Sparrow, written by David Benioff and D.B. Weiss, and directed by Mark Mylod. I probably pronounced that name wrong, and if I did, I'm sorry, but I'm going with Mylod for now, at least. Um, we'll be back next week. Thank you all for listening. I ordered Mansray to burnt at the stake. You prevented that order from being carried out. You showed mercy to Mansray. The king's word is law. Perhaps you should ask the Davos how much mercy I show to lawbreakers. Show too much kindness, people won't fear you. If they don't fear you, they don't follow you. With respect, Your Grace, the free folk will never follow you, no matter what you do. You're the man who burned their king alive. Who then? You? No. Only one of their own. Do you know this wretched girl? Lyanna Mormont. The Lord Commander's niece. Lady of Bear Island. And a child of ten. 
Asked her to commit her house to my cause. That's her response. Bear Island knows no king but the king in the north, whose name is Stark. That amuses you. Apologize, Your Grace. Northerners can be a bit like the free folk. Loyal to their own. Oh, no. My brother Robert went on often and loudly about how difficult it was to control them. Even with your father's help. Tonight, the Night's Watch elects a new Lord Commander. Sir Alistair Thorne is going to win. Most likely. Unpleasant man. He thinks you're a traitor. What's your life going to be like here at the Wall with Thorne in command? Unpleasant, I expect. Your bravery made him look weak. He'll punish you for it. I don't punish men for bravery. I reward them. I don't doubt it, Your Grace. But I'm a brother of the Night's Watch. I pledge them my life, my honor, my sword. I don't know what I have left to give you. You can give me the North. I can't. Even if I wanted to, I'm a bastard. A snow. Kneel before me. Lay your sword at my feet. Pledge me your service and you'll rise again as John Stark, Lord of Winterfell. And chaos is yours, and chaos is mine. mine. 